0: Hello and welcome to Sense and Sensibility, the Inflation Guy podcast. I am Michael Ashton. I am the Inflation Guy. I am your host. And today on the podcast, I have several little tidbits to discuss. I guess there's kind of one bigger thing, but, you know, occasionally just stuff sort of, uh, you know, stuff to talk about doesn't always arrive in a cadence of one thing per week. So occasionally there are a couple of things that I want to talk about at the same time. Today, one of the things uh, I'm going to talk about briefly references the blog that I posted yesterday. Uh, One is about changes in the Fed's reverse RP program that's worth keeping an eye on. And and one, and I think probably the most important, is about an inflation-indexed life annuity kind of. So stay tuned. But first, a word from our sponsor. This episode of Sense and Sensibility is sponsored by Simplify ETFs a fast-growing manager of alternative ETFs solving today's most pressing portfolio challenges. Not only do they have sophisticated diversifying strategies like a managed futures ETF or yield curve plays like TUA, they also have the number one best-performing intermediate core bond fund from 2023, that's AGGH, and an enhanced income ETF, ticker HIGH, that was in the top 2% of its category. Their website is simplified.us you can find their entire lineup of ETFs at simplify.us ETFs. And this podcast, of course, is also sponsored by Enduring Investments. You've listened, you've heard, you've understood, you want to defend your money. Whether you're an individual investor or a pension or insurance company or wealth management CIO, you are charged with the defense of your money as inflation rises and falls with renewed volatility. It doesn't have to feel like a scene from the 300. Enduring Investments is there to lock shields with you. Whether it's in a separate account or a private fund, join with Enduring and take the battle to the enemy. Defend your money. Visit us at EnduringInvestments.com. <clears throat> so, just at the beginning here, I just want to you know, mark-to-market, remind everybody where we are in the in- inflation uh, inflation cycle here. Inflation is coming down. Median inflation is still kind of high. Um, the most recent numbers we've gotten, we got core PCE today, and it ticked up. And it's sort of really bothering a bunch of the people who had focused on the three-month or, or six-month rates of change. And so we got really, really excited when those numbers got really low. But of course, there's a reason we don't focus on three-month or six-month rate of change. Overall, inflation is coming down, But it's not going to deflation. We're not going to get, you know, we we, we may get so that median, you know, or core anyway, at at least gets into the twos before it kind of goes back up, just depending on how the whole rents thing plays out. But we're going to end up around the low threes, high high threes, low fours. Um, That's kind of been my view for a while. It's still my view. I'll change my view at some point, but that's kind of where I think we're going to where we're going to end up. Um, one of the things, one of, one news item for the last couple of days, there was a lot. There was a lot of, uh, uh, well, I guess you have to be kind of an inflation geek, or or a part-time inflation geek. I guess a lot of people got very excited because of some strange uh, note from the Bureau of Labor Statistics about how the uh the, the sampling um of owners equivalent rent units had changed and because everybody again you know the 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 tourists the inflation tourists had seen this most recent you know uptick in owners equivalent rent relative to primary rents there was a big gap this last month <clears throat> not an unusual not a crazy gap i mean it happens occasionally but but of course, it made everybody wonder. Oh, something crazy must have happened, and something the BLS put out kind of suggested that maybe there was something. Um, but what they had, what they suggested, this, this sampling of units issue just, it couldn't possibly be big enough um, to cause, an, you know, the issue, cause a two tenths issue in owner's equivalent rent. So. There's really nothing to see there. The main reason that owner's equivalent rent is moving higher than primary rents now has to do with the fact that the way we get to owner's equivalent rent is we we uh, look at rents and then we subtract out utilities. And so when natural gas is going down and utilities costs are inflating less, that means that we take less out of owner's equivalent rent, which makes owner's equivalent rent look like it's going up faster. And so that's the main thing that's happening. It's not a one-month phenomenon, but it wasn't, you know, honestly, it wasn't crazy. It wasn't something that kind of alarmed me when it happened. So, um, but I wanted to point that out and point out that even though we've kind of got this zigzag higher um, over the last month or two, the, the overall story is still inflation is coming down. It's just not going to come back down to where everybody kind of wanted it to be and, and and thought it was going to be. Um, now, one way we could get inflation back down there, so we've got a couple of things pushing inflation higher over time. One of them is demographics, um, one of them is this deglobalization, this re onshoring. Both of those things tend to push inflation higher over time. Um, one thing that's pushing, that could push inflation lower is, you know, technology and productivity. And I had I talked about this. Um, I talked about you know AI and whether AI would kill inflation um, some time ago, back in episode fifty four, and I have a link in the in the show notes. Um, Will artificial intelligence kill inflation? Was the was the title of my podcast, and and, and yesterday I wrote a uh, uh, a blog post. That you can get at the Inflation Guy blog um, about. You know AI, and and you know if this is the 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 whiz bang, huge life changing technology of this twenty year period, um, you know, is it worth having stocks at a hundred thousand? Is it, um, you know, is it going to you know collapse? Uh, inflation, you know, what's it going to do? And and so one of the things I do in the blog, and I think it's worth reading, a lot of people have liked the blog, um, this particular post, is that I look at what happened in the internet revolution, because I'd argue that if, as big a deal as AI is, it's hard to argue that that change in our lives, with AI coming into it, is bigger than the change that happened in the mid-90s to the early 2000s of suddenly everything being networked and suddenly the internet being a real thing and and being able to order and email and watch TV, do everything else in the world that you want to do, you know, all the business to business stuff that happened on the internet was truly um, an enormous change in the way... Um, that we that life is conducted and and so in the blog I kind of said well okay so what did that actually do to productivity growth and you would be surprised the answer is not nearly as much as you think it if the numbers are accurate and, and it's hard to measure productivity and you know, whatever but at least the order of magnitude is roughly right the total contribution of of the internet of, of, of the you know that that era of the late 90s, um, and remember, we had a huge internet bubble. It was going to be the greatest thing in the world. But the, the total amount that improved our standard of living over and above kind of just the normal advances of, of, uh, of productivity of, of one one and a half two 2% a year, is worth a grand total of maybe 10%. So our standard of living is 10% better today. There's a step change of this 10% that happened over, you know, a five or six or 10-year period, and we're better off today by about 10%. That's it. And what that says is that stocks, as a result of that, should be, all those being equal, 10% or so higher. Earnings should be 10% or so higher, and so on and so forth. It's just not, even though that was a huge thing, it was nowhere nearly nowhere near as huge as you think it is um, and that's because we don't notice all the the normal little increases in productivity that happen all the time and so when you get a, a big G whiz one people tend to exaggerate them exaggerate it, it gets exaggerated in in securities prices and people tend to and that's how you get bubbles and so as we are moving here towards having you know, certain stocks like NVIDIA and, and some other parts of the market that are having bubble-like valuations and which are pulling on the rest of the equity market in much the same way that the internet bubble pulled lots of non-internet stocks higher into bubble territory back in 99. We need to be aware that that the at some point you're going to have a, value, a revaluation where people recognize what the actual effect on, you know, the earnings of all U.S. industry, um, uh, what, what's actually going to happen, and it's just not going to be a hundred percent move. So, therefore, you know it, we're probably at some point going to going to come back. Having said that, <laughs> the other lesson of '99 is it went on a long time before it came back down. So, uh, hard to decide when to jump off the train, but something to keep in mind. Um, one of the uh, Side note here before I get into the thing I I really want to talk about, Um, and that is that So for a long time, since long before COVID, in fact, um, back in 2008, 2009, part of my story has been that when the Fed in 2008 decided to add plentiful excess reserves, we entered a new era of monetary policy. Prior to that new environment, bank lending was constrained mainly by the amount of reserves that banks held, and the Fed directly affected the quantity of reserves and therefore fairly directly affected the quantity of money. Um, But that's directly how the Fed controlled the quantity of money. They wanted money supply to fall, they pulled back on reserves. If they wanted money supply to rise, they added more reserves. That's simple. Um, The reserves were the throttle those additions and deletions also caused overnight rates to, to fall and to rise. But it was the quantity of the reserves that was the main point. And in 2008, that all changed because the Fed added lots more reserves than the banks needed and to incentivize them to not lend all that money, um, they paid interest on those excess reserves to the banks. It's a way to reliquify the banking sector by jamming reserves into the banking sector and sending them money just for just because they held on to reserves. And the assumption was that when that crisis was over, the Fed would reduce the amount of excess reserves in the system. But they never did. And they decided they did QE 2 and 3 and whatever. And they decided that, you know, they could do what they needed to by just manipulating the overnight rate, the price of reserves, rather than the rationing reserves themselves. And what this means is that we could sort of track how – it meant that the Fed was no longer – uh, affecting the money supply directly. They were no longer operating on the margin. They could no longer control the quantity of bank lending very directly. And, and so the flip side of that is we could sort of track how close to binding the reserves were by tracking various measures of non-reserves liquidity. If you really want to know, and i, I assure you really, really do not, things that, are, that go in the factors absorbing reserve balances on the Fed's balance sheet. <clears throat> so, anyway, Thorsten Slock of uh, Apollo, who's an outstanding uh, economist, analyst, um, I've read him before he went to Apollo. He's, he's really, really outstanding. He recently pointed out that the balance of reverse repurchase agreements, RRPs, is down about from about 2.7 trillion at the peak last year, in the summer of last year to about 910 billion now. So it's you know that's fairly ample 1.8 trillion dollar decline. And all that improvement actually is since you know just this last June, and Thorsten is worried about whether there will be stresses in money markets when that goes to zero around the middle of this year, uh, and and so that's why he was kind of calling calling it out. Gee, you know, if we run out of RRPs in the past, going that thing going to zero has been associated with money market stresses. Now there may be, um, although we existed for generations without this excess liquidity. So it's hard for me to get too excited about it, but maybe that's one reason my stocks are so overbid right now because of all this excess liquidity. I don't know, but that's not the reason I'm watching. I'm watching because once the RRP balance basically goes down to zero, it just means we're that much closer to where the fed can affect the money supply by directly moving reserves again. Now, part of the RRP balances are going back into reserves um, and the Excess reserves are still at 3.4 trillion, but you know, they have been coming down. And and once once and if the Fed continues to shrink the balance sheet, you know, that's the number we want to see. That's the number I would love to see go to zero. I don't think it'll ever will go to zero. The Fed believes that the price of money matters more than its quantity. So they don't really, you know, and, and they think that there's some minimum of excess reserves that is necessary for smoothly functioning markets. You know, again, we did this for a hundred years before the Fed started aiming to have too much, too many reserves in the system. So maybe, but maybe they're right. I don't know. the The point is that having the RRP's go to zero will be a highlight to to watch whether we get some money market stresses. Um, but it also will mean that we can start looking at those excess reserves again, and and hopefully see them continue to go down. If they do, that's maybe one you – know, maybe that keeps money, su- the money supply growth constrained long enough to really bring down inflation in a more permanent way. There's a lot of ifs there. Uh, we're a long way from that. I'm just trying to give you some guideposts. Now, the big thing that I wanted to discuss – and here we are. We're 15 minutes in. If I got to what I wanted to talk about today. Um, somebody sent me – one of my listeners sent me something um, – Last week, because I had mentioned um, inflation-linked annuities and sort of lamented the fact that there really aren't any inflation-linked annuity uh, product being offered by insurance companies out there, even though it's a it's a hugely important uh, product or would be if it was if it existed. And it's hugely important because that sort of product, an inflation-linked life annuity, kind of solves multiple problems that a retiree has. One problem is the fear that you'll outspend your money. You'll, you'll run out of money before you die. Well, with a life annuity, that doesn't happen. The insurance company agrees to pay you until you die. And the other concern that retirees have, people who you know, have, have to live off of their income for, or their, their wealth for 30 years or something like that um, or more, is that the the value of that in real terms will go down over time? Inflation, you know, if you're sitting in a really nice nest egg and we get forty percent inflation, you know, God forbid you're in in you know uh, you know Zimbabwe, you're in you're in one of the you know, Nigeria has a big inflation problem right now, and you had a nice nest egg. Well, guess what? It's it goes down really rapidly when you have strong inflation. So so. You know, this is why regular annuities aren't necessarily a great solution because they tend to be in nominal terms, $1,000 a month for life. Well, $1,000 a month for life is fine unless the price level triples, in which case suddenly it's like having $300 a month for life, and that's not nearly as exciting. So so what you really would like to have is an inflation-linked life annuity, and they're not terribly hard to create, at least the inflation-linked part. The annuity part, the insurance product part, um, is, is the more difficult part, but that's also where kind of the gains are. And what I mean by that is, is you know, what, what an insurer does, you know, when you have a pool uh, of annuitants, um, is that, you know, they know that some portion of these, these annuitants will die early. Some of them will live a very long time. But they have a pretty good idea of kind of what the total value of the pool will be. Um, But what ends up happening is that the people who die early essentially are funding the people who live long. And, of course, we don't know who they are going in. But because we combine all – you know, if any one person can't do that, but if you put 1,000 people in this cohort – then you've got some idea. And so that's a gain from insurance. That's something that an individual can't do. It's only by pooling, by risk pooling, that you kind of create this this potential value where you get something which has a potential value to you far in excess of its discounted financial value because it's an uncertain discounted financial value. So if you have to save for yourself, if you have to create your own inflation-linked annuity... You have to create one that's long enough until you're going to live to be 100, say. And that, that requires a certain amount of money. But what if you died at 70? Then the rest of that money is wasted. You, you could have spent, a, spent it a lot faster. Well, when you pool lives again, what happens is that that guy who did die at 70 is financing you, means you didn't have to set aside as much because you're, you're pulling some from him. This is kind of a non sequitur, but it kind of reminds me, actually, my, my, my son last year for spring break uh, went on a scuba club trip um, to Cozumel, and which normally would be too expensive for us to pay for. But what had happened was some guy in the club who had already paid his deposit wasn't able to go. And my son was able to go and essentially absorb, you know, take that guy's deposit and use it for his own his own benefit. that's kind of what happens in an an annuity pool. So anyhow, so these products don't really exist. Well, somebody sent to me um, a, um, I guess, a marketing piece from a company called LifeX that um, is very much like an inflation-linked annuity. Let me explain. So they... They're, they're essentially mutual funds. They have m- a bunch of different series of these mutual funds, each of which is only for sale to a particular bo- birth and gender cohort. So if you were born in the years 1948 to 1963, um, there's a cohort for you. 1948 males, 1948 females, 1949 males, 1949 females, 19, you know, and so on and so forth. Um, unless you're 60 years old, you can't buy these. Okay. So if you're you're 45 right now, you can't buy one of these things. So that's kind of one potential issue. Um, by the way, I'm not really sure how they keep you from buying them if you're in the wrong cohort. I mean, is there a reason that I, I'm not 60. Can I buy one of these things? I mean, it's a mutual fund. There's got to be some way that, you know, the broker, is, you know, my, 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 uh, stock broker is sharing my age or something with, with them, I, I don't really understand how that plumbing works. That's a little bit disturbing to me, but whatever. That's it's important that the cohort only have those people in there um, because what they do is so you pay the price, and the price is say twenty dollars, and then as soon as you do that, uh, you start receiving one dollar per year, paid monthly. You know, um, you know, eight cents monthly, eight and a third cents monthly, monthly per share that you buy. Um, in the first year, that's you get $1, and then the amount goes up every year with inflation. And you receive that money at least until your 80th birthday. And then after your 80th birthday, you receive it until you die. Before your 80th birthday, you can get out. Um, there'll be a price, it's just like a mutual fund, you can get in and out, you can add to it, whatever you want. As soon as you hit 80, the unit ceased to trade. And so you, whatever your allocation is, that's what you got. And that's important because otherwise people who were about to die, you know, 85 years old and, you know, they, they suddenly get really sick and, you know, the mutual fund has a $10 value, they'd sell it immediately because otherwise it's going to be worth zero, you know, in two months when they die. So so it's really important that you not have kind of that adverse selection. So that's why, you know, you can't get out after, after you're 80. Um So this is sort of one way that, again, this isn't, it's not an insurance company. So you have to try, they have to try to make this behave a little bit, um, like an insurance company. And, and as it, you know, as it is, there's probably some adverse selection anyway, with people getting close to 80. If you're 79 and and not feeling so good, you know, and you don't think you're going to live to 90, which is kind of how these things are priced, then it Probably smarter if you go ahead and take the money at whatever the value is then, and having received all these these income payments so far, and that rather than, um, you know, starting to, you know, continuing to get this, but no, but having to basically take it until you die and then, and then having it go to zero. And again, the early the people, the early dyers are, the, are necessary to make it work for the people who are going to live to 100 basically they say they pay to 100 and then and then the fund is done. Now, as i said, the shares aren't wrapped by an insurance company. Um, when the fund is done, when there's no more money left in it, they stop paying you. And so if, if you aren't not, if you aren't 100, then oh well. Whereas with an insurance company, they kind of guarantee, you know, the particular terms of the contract. So with an insurance company, the adverse selection issue isn't your problem, it's the insurance company's problem. In this case, the adverse selection problem is actually yours. If the fund runs out of money, your payment stops. Um, by the way, the company is very clear about this, points this out, but they also point out that you know one potential issue is we find a cure for cancer and everybody lives a little bit longer. And it turns out that, okay, that means that people who are living to 100 don't get, you know, the, the, they run out a, a few months early, but, it, you know, they didn't lose a whole bunch of value. And it only affected the people who were living towards the end of the cohort. Um, and so actuarially this is true. changes in longevity tend not to be dramatic. Granted, If everybody lives to be 150, this the funds are going to go to zero very quickly it, it doesn't work. But, but but that's that's what happens. Changes in longevity tend to happen fairly slowly and they've gotten good advice as to what this what sort of uh, uh, longevity changes can are, are likely to happen, what kind of the, the ranges of that are. But it's not true if you, add, if you start adding adverse selection. So if at age 79, we had another, you know, you're at age 70, your cohort is at age 79, and COVID hits again. And it's especially lethal to people who are 80. <laughs> okay, well, guess what? Everybody in your cohort is going to cash out. That depletes the fund. And if you are super healthy... And you're like, well, I'm going to stay in. Well, guess what? There's no more money in the fund. And so you got kind of screwed because adverse selection worked against you. In in, in principle, it could totally wipe out the fund. Now, is that a ridiculous scenario? Well, not that ridiculous. It kind of just happened a few, a few years ago. But but that's an extreme scenario. But it it's kind of one of the the losses here by not having this wrapped by an insurance company is really sort of important to understand what sorts of things you do and do not want to have happen. Now on the other hand, I guess this is on the other hand, it's kind of another negative, I guess, but the payments you're getting are, are kind of lowballed. Um, I'll tell you why I think that in a minute, but um, uh, so running out of money in the fund is, is really probably not a problem because they do have a pretty decent cushion. They're, make, you know, they, they're pricing the units too high for what you're getting. Um, there'll probably be plenty of money. They take a 1% fee to manage the funds. That's going to deplete them over time. But again, they've got plenty of money in them because of how they have priced them. So the problem there is you're not really getting a very good deal. Now, before I say anything else, I want to say it's still the best deal for something like an inflation-adjusted life annuity, that's available. There just isn't anything else out there. It can be improved on. And it's still amazing that no insurance company is doing it. That, of course, is why the deal isn't so good. There's no competition. Annuities in general aren't awesome financial deals, but they are—you know—there there is lots of competition, and they're so risk-reducing that even though they're not great financial deals, they're often worth it because they really improve for you okay, not knowing when you're going to die. They really improve your risk a lot more than you lose in sort of the, the expense. Um, it's really only our sense of fairness, the the ineffable, someone's ripping me off, so it doesn't matter if it's good for me. That makes us, that makes annuities not sell better than they than they do. Um, but, but really, I want these guys, I want LifeX to make a lot of money because that will will create more competition. Um, And under the current structure, they will make a lot of money if enough people buy. And that's because of the pricing. Now, I am not an actuary. So um, actuarial tables are very easy to get. And I could probably put a much finer... uh, create a much finer sense of exactly how expensive these are, you know, compared to, you know, where they would be if, if the insurance company made no money. So you can kind of estimate how much the insurance company or the, the fund management company in this case is making money. Um, but, um, but you don't really need to do that. Now uh, uh, keep in mind that again, there are a bunch of these different cohorts starting from 1948. Okay. So people who, Um, you know, will be 80 in in four years, and so they're going to get at least four years of payments, and up to 24 years of payments before they turn 100. Okay, so that that unit, uh, if you're if you're female, um, costs you, according to Bloomberg today, fourteen dollars and fifty six cents. Um, and if you're, I'm sorry, if you're male, and if you're female, $16.14, why, here, test your understanding. Why, for the 1948 birth cohort, why does the female have to pay more for this annuity than the male does? Well, the answer is that females are expected to live longer. And so to get, and so because of that, You know they're they're so they're expected to receive more. They're expected to go longer into this this 20 year period between 80 and 100 years old, and so because they're expected to live longer, they have to pay more because they don't have as many people dying early to finance the people who are going to live later. And so in general, actually, if you look at all of the all of these cohorts, um, again 1948 to 1963, so that's 16 different years, male and female, so 32 different cohorts. All of the male all the prices for the male units are, are, are cheaper than the ones for the female units. Again, it makes perfect sense, and, and I, I trust that they've done the math kind of correctly on that. It's hard for me to evaluate whether... Look, all right, so let's let's think about the 1948 cohort. So you're going to get your $1. It costs you $14.50 if you're male, and you're going to get it for... You're going to get at least $4 out of that. You're going to max of... Twenty-four dollars out of that in real terms, okay, um, and and so you know so it's fourteen uh, between four and twenty-four. Okay, so you can sort of kind of see your you're kind of right in the middle, right? So if you target ninety, if you think you're going to live to ninety years old, it's a fair bet. And you know either side, whatever. Uh, there's present value considerations, but we can ignore those for for the knots. It, it's um. In fact, the the present value, if you get the full twenty four, is only nineteen real dollars, and so and so you're really it's, so it's biased a little bit. Anyhow, um, but you can sort of understand that now. But I want to look at the the, the later ones, the ones uh, so from nineteen sixty three, where you know those people um, are are currently the sixty years old. Unless you've already had your birthday, but you're 60 years old, and so you could receive this this dollar for 20 years um, at the at the minimum, or this dollar adjusted for inflation for 40 years at the best. Okay, so so here's the thing. Um, so the the price of this, if you're a male, is twenty seven dollars and sixty five cents, and if you're a female, twenty nine dollars and twenty two cents. All right. Um, so the present value, so here's the question. The question is, suppose that instead of buying this thing, um, I actually bought a ladder of tips structured in such a way to give me $1 in real payments, um, every year for the next you know, X number of years. Okay. Actually, it doesn't have to be X number. Uh, For the next 40 years. Okay, so I can either buy, let's suppose I'm a woman to make it easier here. Um, I can buy this fund for $29.22 that will pay me for something between 20 and 40 years, an inflation-adjusted dollar. Or I could buy a ladder of tips to pay me a dollar for $28.95. So in other words, I can buy a series of cash flows that's guaranteed to pay me for all 40 years for less than it costs me to have the payment that could be for less than 40 years. Well, obviously, you don't want to do that. And that occurs because it's too expensive in the structure that it is. Um, Now, and in fact, if you're, paying more than you could pay for the guaranteed cash flow, even in the event of your death, then it's not even risk reducing anymore, right? So so somewhere between the minimum, the 1948 cohort, and the maximum 1963 cohort, it starts to be less and less of a good deal until at the 1963 cohort, it gets to be a pretty bad deal. Uh, so it's, it's anyway, I, I, again, I don't want to I really don't want to, like, tear down the only shop that's actually trying to do this. And so let's give them credit. Um, In fact, I'll even say that I wish they had them for cohorts later than 63 because, you know, I'd like to have people who were further away uh, from retirement being able to do this. And and obviously the reason they're not doing it for longer periods um, is – is because the uncertainty about that cohort goes up quite a bit, um, but also because they don't, only have inflation linked bonds for 30 years and you could probably get a 40 year inflation swap, but that's probably about the maximum. There are ways to get around that problem, but that's, that's probably part of the reason that they are structured the way that they're structured. But anyway, you slice it a, 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 a positive, uh, it's positive that such a things are offered, and so I will give uh, give these guys Stone Ridge Asset Management, the LifeX funds. Uh, I'll give them, um, you know, three inflation guys out of five, out of four, out of four. Three inflation guys out of four. How about that? Three. Eh, I got to come up with some better symbol than an inflation guy. Three balloons. What do you think? Tell me what you think the uh, the symbols should be, not Pinocchios, whatever, How many, what the symbols should be for an Inflation Guy rating scale. And uh, and that's all for today. That sounds like a great way to leave off. You tell me what my rating scale should look like. Please like, subscribe, refer others to this podcast. And if you have an idea for a rating scale, send me uh, an email at inflationguyataduringinvestments.com. As I have said, you can subscribe for free to the blog at InflationGuide.blog. Follow me on, on X at Inflation Guy and visit Enduring Investments if you have an inflation challenge. Most importantly, defend your money. And if inflation is coming for you and you don't yet have an inflation-linked annuity, remember, you know a guy.